Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are here to talk to you about a potentially fearful subject. Yeah. You know, FDR famously said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But did you know that, like, fear of a fear is a thing? Is it? Is it a real thing or just a thing that we made a phobia name for? I think it's like a sanctioned phobia. It's phobiophobia. Because that's the thing about phobias. You can create any of phobias that you want. There's There are these endless lists online of phobias. Yeah. But you get into a different discussion if you start taking them case by case and saying, is this actually a phobia? Does does this linguistically work as a name for uh, a phobia? It, it gets kind of muddy. It does get muddy, and we're going to explore this uh, sort of muddy terrain today. But first, I wanted to mention that according to R. Reed Wilson, Ph.D. and spokesman for the American Psychological Association, over their lifetimes, 11% of people will have a phobia, which seems a bit high to me, i got to say. I was surprised by that. Yeah, I've also read that, uh, yeah, that more than 19 million Americans have a phobia. And, uh, and and what are we talking about when we're talking about a phobia? Well, it's, we were talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those terms that gets thrown around in the lexicon. It's kind of a, it's a lazy usage of it because yeah. a lot of us will say, oh, it's, I have a phobia of, you know, cacti or whatever. And yeah. We don't really have a phobia. Like we can get out of our house into our car and drive past a cactus. It will be perfectly fine. Most yeah. of us. Yeah, I feel like there are a number of different so-called phobias. And this is not to say that people do not have a legitimate fear or a legitimate phobia of these things. But there's there are things that become kind of cool and hip. Like, oh, I have a clown phobia. And I know you claim that you have a real aversion to clowns. But I feel like sometimes uh, that's yeah. just a, like a hip thing to say. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm... I'm afraid of clowns. I would say yeah. it's like a mild fear. I'm not going to... I will mm-hmm. avoid clowns in a crowd. Yes. But um, you don't leave your house every day fearful that you will run into a clown. You don't look for clowns yes. under your bed. Yes. And so that's where you really see the difference between a fear and a phobia. Because a phobia can really just change your behavior. In fact, right. it can impair your behavior. So, sure, you might be scared. You might have a fear of, of spiders. That's a big one because spiders are something worth being afraid of. I mean, it's there's only 0.1% of 35,000 different species of spider in the world are poisonous. But... You have some outstanding uh, uh, creepers out there, like the black widow spider, the, bl- yeah. the brown recluse. You grow up knowing about these. It's it's perfectly normal and right and healthy to be respectful and maybe a little afraid of the black widow spider. So it's one thing to sort of have that quick uh, light go off in your head when you see a spider in uh-huh. a barn and say, like, all right, is it a black widow spider? No, okay, I'm probably okay. It's a whole different thing to be afraid to leave your house, to be to look under your bed, to look under your pillow yeah. for these spiders. Yeah, right. One is sort of, as you say, respectful, sort of a survival instinct. Yeah. Hey, I'm not going to go up to that and handle that that spider. That looks sort of terrible. And the other is, I will not leave my house tonight after <laughs> dark because then I will be prevented from seeing any spiders that may cross my path. That's where it becomes super irrational, and that's where we see phobias set in. And it is this kind of persistence of outsized fears morphing into phobias. And Michael Vasey, who is a professor of psychology at Ohio State University, and uh, he and a team of researchers recruited 57 people who self-identified as having a spider phobia. 
And each participant then interacted at specific time points over something like eight weeks with five different varieties of tarantulas, <laughs> varying in size from about one inch to six inches long. Now, the reason why I bring out size is because this is really important. Later on, when they asked them to estimate how large these spiders were, it turns out that those with the more severe forms or form of this phobia had a, a greater exaggeration of the size. So there you see this idea, the, the, the thing that you have a phobia about really sort of growing in size in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, the fear gets bigger, that the, the object of the fear is larger. I keep thinking of somebody with just their living room and, and how big is the spider in your living room? Is it, is it, 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 when it gets to the point where it's so big that you're tripping over it to where you can't live a normal life in your living yeah. room, then that's, that's where you're, you're seeing the, the phobia, uh, power take hold. Yeah, the, the phobia really alters your perception of that thing or object or, or, uh, animal. And it's it, great that you mentioned tarantulas. Because where do tarantulas like to, to, to hide out? Under in, my bed? Well, in holes. Ah, yeah, if you've ever nice. observed a tarantula in the wild, uh, which, you know, you should, unless you have some issues with, with the spiders, you know, they'll hang out in those little, those little holes, those little layers. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. Okay, we need to talk about this fear of holes thing, because yes. this is where it gets into, like, str- strange terrain. And, and, and we wanted to bring this up um, as an example of something that may or may not really be a phobia. Mm-hmm. And yet people have certain visceral reactions to it. And I'm talking about something as, as innocent looking as potpourri. Yeah. Okay. Because that potpourri, beware, it has these menacing seed pods, at least some of them, containing arrays of holes, these tiny portals into the abyss for some people who think, you know, they could just fall into it and never return. And I'm talking about trypophobia, fear of holes. Yes, trypophobia. And uh, if you're listening listening to this podcast on the website, um, I'll include some links on there, including a link to a gallery of some of these images that we're discussing here. Because there is something about this whole subject of trypophobia and the fear of holes that you, you look at some of these images and you do, or at least in my case, I do feel a sort of visceral reaction to some of them uh and and we'll we'll discuss as we go but but uh, certainly that uh that lotus seed head is one that that is was kind of shocking because you do see it in potpourri everywhere you you see it showing up in, in living rooms you see it showing up in in you know beautiful still life pictures and uh and it doesn't it it never before seemed to to be a, a symbol of fear to me now, here's the thing about this, this trypophobia, is that before widespread use of the Internet, there wasn't much chatter about a fear of mm-hmm. holes. But lo and behold, you have this whole community, and you have people who start banning together in their mutual hatred of holes and start sharing these pictures. And uh, what you have is a Facebook page that's formed, an Internet domain by the name of trypophobia.com. And scads of videos on the topic. In fact, we recently made a video looking yes. at some of the footage of that. And all of a sudden you have psychologists taking notice. Like, hmm, is this a real thing? And indeed, there's there's a whole list of examples uh, of, of supposed triggers for trypophobia. Uh, the lotus seed head that we mentioned, uh, which is seems to often be at just the top of people's lists. Uh, and then also things like beehives, wasp nest. You know, situations where you have a whole bunch of holes clustered together and some of them are capped off maybe or containing something, especially if they're containing a squirming 
uh, you know, growing larva. Mm-hmm. I could see where that would uh, definitely factor in. Uh, sometimes you can even find these, of course, in food. Like pancakes, yes. like the batter specifically bubbling. I never thought of that as grotesque. I mean, that's just pancakes. But. I know. It's just a temporary crater there before the whole thing firms up. Um, but apparently people who say they suffer from, from trypophobia have phobia-like symptoms like nausea or the feeling like their skin is crawling or shuddering. Or, or there's even descriptions of feeling like they're going to fall headfirst into the hole. Hmm. Another example that comes up a lot is the Cernum toad, which is this uh, this really interesting toad creature with this kind of uh, perforated back with all these little holes in it that the, the young uh, end up uh, living in for a certain period of time. Oh, nice. So that's another example. Here we have a whole bunch of holes clustered in organic living tissue with other living things inside of it. Yeah, and keep that that uh, example in mind for later when we talk about the whys of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, for right now, I wanted to mention that in 2012, psychologists Jeff Cole and Arnold Wilkins of the University of Essex in England, they, they combed over all these anecdotal pictures that would just make people weak in the knees in a bad way uh, when looking at holes. And they settled on the, the most disturbing of these images, and it was, of course, the dreaded lotus seed head. And they showed 286 adults aged 18 to 55 the image, and 11% of men and 18% of women described the seed head as uncomfortable or even repulsive to look at, which they say um, those figures are about on par with the level of repulsion found in other actual phobias. Hmm. Now, that's one study, Yes, we should say. So what is it about this, this frog? I mean, because there's nothing... I mean, what's so fearful about the idea that this creature has some holes in its body that the young live in them? And it's just like a kangaroo situation, and everybody loves the kangaroo, no matter how um, you know grotesque that might be in the finer details. Yeah, but the kangaroo pouch isn't like a gaping hole, right? It's all—it's kind of tidy. It's not like you kind of—I guess. I, I mean, I haven't really gotten in there close, but uh... <laughs> there is a kangaroo sanctuary very close to to Atlanta. I did, kangaroos do kind of unsettle me a bit. I'm, I'm certainly not saying I have a phobia of them or even a fear of them, but every time I go to the zoo, for the most part, they're not hopping around like proper kangaroos in proper storybooks. They're laying around, and they always kind of look like like old men just, you know, out there on the ground doing kind of semi-sexy poses. Oh, that yeah. is a little bit I call it, I call it kangaroo danger. Kangaroo danger. Yeah. For me, it's the boxing <laughs> and then seeing them taking bets on the side. Oh, that's terrible. Those wallowies. It is what they do with their money. All right. So Colin Wilkins, they said, what's going on here? And they said, hey, we think that there may, might be something about the patterns, the spectral patterns found in some species of dangerous or poisonous animals. And they did um, some analyzing of these patterns and their dimensions. And lo and behold, some of them matched up to these other holes that people would see. Okay. Like in pancakes, like, you know, maybe there was this poisonous plant with these these uh, sort of configurations on them that were meant to say, hey, I'm poisonous. And the mathematical structure of it actually lined up with some of the holes that they found uh, that were disturbing people. So the idea here is that we have an evolved tendency to notice these patterns. We're pattern yeah. recognizing creatures. Uh, we, we see this and on some level we associate it with dangerous organisms. Which seems a little bit like a long walk when you consider something like Swiss cheese. Yes, which I've never found terrifying. 
No. no. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, ah, that's, it's cheese. It's really evident that it's cheese. But then again, yeah, we are talking about... It's cartoon cheese, and a mouse needs to run around inside of those holes. <laughs> I mean, right. we all know this. But we are talking about irrational fears and phobias here. So another take was posited by William Skaggs writing for Scientific American, and he said that maybe it could be a misattribution of germ and disease-ridden sores on the human body. In other words, you have crusty seed pods, which could remind us of like highly contagious weeping sores mm. that we would want to steer clear of. Now, this is the one that 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 I I think I like the most. The one that seems to sync with my brain when I'm looking at some of these images. Mm -hmm. Because the ones that disturb me more are the ones where someone has created like an artificial image that shows these kind of clusters on the human body. Uh, And and it instantly makes me think uh, I don't think there is really a horror movie monster that really takes uh, trypophobia by the horns and really goes nuts with it. You do see a little of it here and there. For instance, Freddy Krueger comes to mind, who of course is the uh, you know the the burn scarification, mm-hmm. and uh, and there are parts of that basic design that uh, that have kind of a, this whole poxy tendency to it. Well, and you would see the disgust thing that's elicited. Yeah. You could see that, right? And right. I I even brought in the seed pod for the video um, that I have, and it has gashes along the side of it. Mm-hmm. Those are its holes. And I do have to say, when I looked at it closely, I was like, that kind of reminds me of just like flesh wounds, like you know, not necessarily like pus-filled holes or anything, but you can look at it for a long time and start to go, eh, okay, maybe. Um, Now, for me, though, the more satisfying explanation, at least right now, because we don't know whether or not this is a a tried-and-true phobia, is that social media may prime us to assume the phobia for ourselves. And this is according to Jennifer Abbasi writing for Popular Science. She says, quote, an element of so-called emotional contagion seems to be at work on Facebook, where some group members say they didn't realize they were trypophobic until they started reading others' comments and clicking on the pictures. Ah, uh, yes. Now, that one I also strongly agree with, in part because I think it harkens back to what I've said earlier about fear of clowns or fear of puppets, things like this, where, again, not discounting that some people might have actual uh, legitimate phobias regarding these things, but there is this this uh, this idea that you go onto social media and you, you hear people talking about it, and then you see enough example evidence that is put forth, say, images of creepy clowns, images of creepy puppets, and you just assume it for yourself. You 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 catch the fake fear. I agree, but I will tell you that my first, the, the first uh, nightmare I can recall was of a jester, and this is when it began. And it was a jester <laughs> that became really large and small, like, and then... One pill makes you larger. Hmm. One pill makes you small. Was this? A, are you sure you weren't watching Poltergeist? Because I feel like there's a creepy jester puppet in Poltergeist. No, that, the okay. Poltergeist was not hmm. even in existence. Oh. So anyway, uh, the point is, is that these these are you know these are kind of like these tropes that are just in our brains, and um, we work on such a subconscious level. We talk about this all the time, these subconscious things that are going on that then serve up these revelations. So, And we all want to belong to a group, right? We want to yeah. be a, a part of a tribe, a part of various tribes. And, uh, and hey, here's this tribe. And the only entry fee is to admit that, a lo- <laughs> that, that you're afraid of the lotus. Right. Yeah. And pancakes. And pancakes. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the, the more classic phobias, um, the types, the examples. And we're talking about who suffers the most from phobias. All right. We're back. 
Uh, we're talking about trypophobia, the fear of holes, but we're also discussing just phobias in general, the nature of phobias and the difference between a phobia and a fear. Yeah, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there are three types of phobias. And the first type is social phobia, which apparently afflicts 15 million people in the U.S. And what we're talking about really are social anxiety disorders. So the fear of public speaking, mm-hmm. uh, fear of using our public restroom with others or eating with others, or just in more general cases, being with others, because okay. there's that anxiety of, oh, I'll make some sort of misstep or, or, you know, I'm experiencing this panic uh, because I feel like there's a social element that I can't handle. And sometimes it can be an actual precursor for agoraphobia. Okay, and agoraphobia, of course, is the intense anxiety in public places where an escape might be difficult. So a crowded room, a a party in which there's only one exit and you have to uh, go all the way through the party again to make it out. Uh, Situations like that. I mean, there are various takes on this you can easily imagine. Yeah, and a lot of people think, oh, it's just a fear of open spaces, but that's not it. It's Mm -hmm. the fear that you will have a panic attack and it... People will see you and you won't be able to get help in time or, you know, this this full blown meltdown is going to happen right in the middle of this very public space. And agoraphobia affects twice as many women as men. And if left untreated in extreme cases, it means that that person is going to become housebound. And then there are specific phobias. Uh, This is where uh, we have an irrational fear of specific objects or situations. So, um This is where we see, for instance, of course, uh, fear of spiders, arachnophobia. Yeah. It's a prime example of this. It's a very specific thing, and you have an intense anxiety uh, related to it. Yeah, and fear of injections, um, such as people who faint at the sight of blood or Mm -hmm. a needle. Fear of flying is another big one. Now, we mentioned the stats already. Uh, Proportionally, who suffers, uh, you know, how many people, 19 million Americans uh, suffer from, from phobias, but... Let's break that down a little more. Who specifically? Who who are the prime candidates for phobias out there in a population? Well, alcoholics, yes. it turns out, can be up to 10 times more likely to suffer from a phobia than those who are not alcoholics. And phobic individuals can be twice as likely to be addicted to alcohol as those who have never been phobic. So you, you look at it, and at first it's kind of like a is the dog wagging the tail Yeah, that's, the, that's what instantly comes to mind. It's like, are they... Is, is this individual afraid of, in, of of intense social situations so they drink or is it, uh, you know, which comes first? Well, I was thinking about it in context of this statistic because according to a 2007 Anxiety and Depression Association of America study, up to 36% of social phobia sufferers wait 10 years or more to seek professional help. And I thought, what do people do mm-hmm. when they when they're not actively seeking professional help? They tend to self-medicate. Yeah, exactly. And so that's a good sort of uh, place to start when you look at alcoholism and phobias, because what helps, at least in the short term, is this sedative effect of alcohol. The problem with it, of course, is that you have the, the ill effects of alcohol use, which actually compound your feelings of anxiety mm-hmm. and lead to that person seeking the alcohol again to try to quiet the mind or escape from those feelings of anxiety, which then, of course, leads to routine, which leads to addiction. And the spider in the room just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, another take on this is that we have a genetic predisposition for certain phobias, that it's passed down from parent to child to child and on and on. Yeah, because it turns out that immediate family members of people with phobias are about three times more likely to have a phobia than those without a family history. Now, some of that could be learned behavior. Right. The mom is always acting afraid of dogs, and therefore she passes this fear onto the child. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you look at the animal world, you might kind of look at this this idea of it being genetically um, predisposed within the individual. It's, so there's a 2013 study by Brian Diaz from the Department of Psychiatry at Emory University, and that was published in Nature Neuroscience. And what they did is they had researchers train mice to fear the smell of cherry blossom using electric shocks before allowing them to breed. Now, the offspring showed fearful responses to the odor of cherry blossom compared to a neutral odor, despite never having encountered a cherry blossom before. That in and of itself is interesting. But the following generation also showed the same behavior, and this effect continued even if the mice had been fathered through artificial insemination and the brains of the trained mice and their offspring also showed structural changes in areas of odor detection. So Professor Marcus Pembury, who is a a pediatric geneticist at University College London, said that the work provided, quote, compelling evidence for the biological transmission of memory He said, quote, it addresses constitutional fearfulness that is highly relevant to phobias, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorders, plus the controversial subject of transmission of the memory of ancestral experience down the generations. So there's there's enough there, I think, that you you can sort of say, okay, maybe there's something going on. But those are rats. What about humans? Is there an example? Well, this brings us back to spiders. Um, you know, I mentioned before that only 0.1% of the 35,000 different kinds of spiders in the world are poisonous, but enough of them are a problem, right? That you only, it only takes one uh, encounter with a black widow to, to teach uh, an organism a lesson. So evolutionary biologists have long wondered if our fear of spiders and snakes is hardwired. So in 2001, a Swedish study actually made a case for an inborn spider aversion through an experiment involving flashcards of fearful or non- and non-fearful images. According to the study, a statistically significant number of subjects identified the pictures of spiders and snakes more swiftly than they did pictures of flowers and the like. Subjects who claimed to suffer from arachnophobia identified the spiders even faster. So... Again, the idea is that there are dangerous organisms out there in the world that we have over time learned to avoid. We end up with it hardwired in our genetics, and therefore we encounter a snake, snake, we encounter a spider, it's going to give us pause because we're going to need to identify them. And then there's going to be an innate fear of the more poisonous varieties. You know, we, we had a whole episode on epigenetics as well that, that looked at generations who... Um, withstood some some very difficult physical and emotional traumas and then later on the the following generations had essentially the the genes switched on for different diseases mm-hmm. and so you look at that and then you look at these two different cases and and you can sort of see how this could nest itself within the DNA of organisms and speaking of generational abuse when we come back we're going to touch on another uh, potential cause here of phobias, and that uh, relates to child abuse.
Wilhelmine Langlin, a trauma researcher at the University of Amsterdam and an author of a 2004 study on phobias and alcohol, found that childhood abuse, we're talking about sexual, physical, or both, could play a role in the later development of what he calls coexisting psychopathologies among alcoholics. So, in other words, phobias could develop if you've had these types of abuse as a child, and they kind of go hand in hand. And uh, they collected data on 155 people who were described as alcoholics, 122 men and 33 women, and they were all applying for treatment in a center for substance use disorders. So all that data that they collected was to assess to what degree they have phobias or disorders. And what they found was that alcoholic patients who reported childhood abuse, again, sexual or sexual and physical, also reported social phobia, agoraphobia, and PTSD more often than patients with no history of abuse. And it recasts this idea, again, of addiction and and alcohol use. We tend to look at an alcoholic as just someone who doesn't have any control over their willpower. When, in fact, you have these underlying conditions that aren't always treated or the root, you know, the root cause isn't, the root cause isn't always uh, looked at in terms of like how can we really address what's going on with the individual. Indeed. So I, I hope this discussion of phobias, where they come from, how they're passed down, that it that it, it casts phobias in its proper light, not merely as a quirky character trait that you assume or some mild aversion, but something something more complex and something deeper and more destructive. Uh, happening in the human psyche. Indeed. And, I mean, is trypophobia a real phobia? We don't know. We don't have enough data or studies behind mm-hmm. it. But we can certainly recognize that some people actually do feel, uh, you know, the sort of sense of disgust or just even like that existential angst of being. And that's why I thought the fear of holes was such an apt metaphor because at the end of the day, we all sort of have this fear of the the whole that is the unknown, the, yeah. the void, um, death, really, in this idea of walking through a portal into the unbound. You know, a, a scene from a film that instantly came to mind when we started putting this topic together is uh, the scene in the classic Flash Gordon film where uh, Flash is hanging out with uh, Timothy Dalton in a treehouse on the treehouse planet, and they have this rite of passage where... Uh, the men have to stick their arms into one of the holes in this big kind of uh, wooden tree rock type mm-hmm. of contraption. Kind of looks like a like something Fraggles would pop out of. You know, it looks like a, a prop from Fraggle Rock, kind of. Except there's some sort of horrible like wood scorpion inside. It may or may not sting your your hand uh, with it with a lethal uh, sting when you put your hand, your arm in there. That was a pretty fantastic scene. Yeah. You showed me it, and I was like, "This is great." And then they go, then they go uh, sort of traipsing down. This giant branch. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the whole film is just a, a cavalcade of uh, fantastic, cheesy set pieces all set to Queen. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. All right. Uh, you guys can find us at uh, the mothership, com. Yep, yep. You will find all the podcast episodes there. You'll find videos. You will find blog posts galore. And you'll find links out to the various social media accounts that we maintain. And if you have thoughts on phobias, uh, please do share them with us. And you can do that by sending us an email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.